Thank you so much, uh, Miss Booth and the Varsity Singers. Excellent job. I didn't have the privilege to sing with a group that good until I was in college. So uh, it brings back good memories from about 25 years ago. So uh, I appreciate the great work that Miss Booth is doing at Person High. I had the opportunity to uh, work alongside her uh, last year some in the school system and just uh, very grateful for the hard work that she's doing and uh, the good result that she's getting from that. <clears throat> My great-great-grandfather, Patrick O'Connell Duffy, would have appreciated the Irish blessing. I enjoyed hearing it last year at your concert, by the way. Well, tonight, uh, as we turn to Ephesians chapter 2, let me say thank you to the people here at Theresa for a great week. It's been a busy week. Uh, today has been the busiest day of all. Uh, before I headed this way, I went to the talent show at Oak Lane and played for Elvis and Kenny Chesney before I came here. Uh, yeah, Elvis is a lot smaller than you thought. Um, but uh, some of your folks are there tonight supporting uh, some of their loved ones. And uh, we know we have a few folks, some over at the associational office for the, the uh, men's ministry meet and greet. And we know there's other things going on tonight. But we are grateful for those of you who are here. We have covered a lot of things this week that are connected to the subject of revival. The reminder that revival is not about lost people. Uh, lost people, as someone said, can't be revived because they've never been vived. Uh, you can't bring back what you've never had. Revival is about God's people returning to the love they had at first for Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, we can expect to see spiritual awakening as God's people get about the Father's business and begin to share the good news of the gospel with those around them. Tonight, I want us to finish out this week as I've challenged you to be out in uh, your community uh, to be out there making disciples, being out there as salt and light in a decaying and dark world. We don't want to attempt to do that without getting the gospel right. We would not be doing any good if we went out uh, to do something for people that was less than what the word of God says is what needs to happen in a sinner's soul for them to be right with God and ready for heaven. You ever had one of those moments at church where uh, the pianist and the organist didn't realize it, but they were about to play two different pieces of music? And they take off, and oh my goodness, one of them may know it, but if neither of them does, there are a lot of people out in the congregation starting to throw elbows and snicker a little bit, and uh, they wonder when they're going to realize that they're on two different pages. The good news is that can be fixed. Uh, even if you have to stop all together and call out a number and get everybody on the same page. The sad truth is, I believe that represents what is often happening spiritually. There are people who think they're playing Jesus' song and they're on the wrong number. They're playing a tune that Jesus didn't write. They're doing things that may be significant, but they only have a worldly significance, not the eternal significance we find in the gospel. So tonight we're going to Ephesians 2, uh, verses 1 through 10, one of the most powerful passages we find not only in Ephesians, but in all of Scripture, as we consider that all people meet, need to be transformed by God's Power. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, I'll be reading to you from the New American Standard Bible. 
Paul writes, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God... Now you can highlight that if you want to, because the ship is about to turn... But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Let's bow together. Father, on this final scheduled night of revival services, we pray again that you would speak, Lord as your servants are listening. Father, as we look at this passage, help us to realize uh, that these verses tell us what we're taking with us when we go out into the world. It tells us the kind of people that we're going to meet. It tells us what they need above all else. And it also tells us what you desire to do through them. God, I pray you would deliver us from fake substitutes from insufficient substitutes from things that may be wanted but are not the greatest need so father equip us tonight give us the tools we need to go out into the darkness of this world and shine the light of christ help us lord to be able to identify lostness And also to be able to see the marks of salvation, the marks of new life in Christ. Father, help us not to settle for less just because the world will pressure us. Uh, Lord, help us not to lower the standards in the church so that uh, the world can roll in. But Lord, help us to hold high the banner of the cross, calling people to repentance from sin and faith in Jesus. Help them to know that it is by the power of Christ that they will be transformed so that they will never be the same again. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we read this passage, there were probably at least two verses in there that may have stood out to you. You've probably heard Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 many, many times. Uh, The sad truth is that those verses, along with countless others, are so often quoted out of context that we don't realize why the authors wrote what they wrote, why they said what they said the way they said it. Well, tonight we're going to walk through this passage and we're going to understand uh, that all people are in need to be transformed by God's power. And I'm going to share with you three aspects of the conversion that they need. 
Conversion may sound like old church terminology, but it's just as needed in 2019 as it was 2,000 years ago. The first thing that I want you to see is what you will find in those who do not know Christ, and that is spiritual deadness. You notice Paul is always a master at not pulling any punches when he says in verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We live in a day and time where people would like to think that humanity is just bunged up a little bit. Uh, they've taken a few licks here and there, and if we could just take them down to the spiritual body shop and uh, maybe pop out a couple of dents and, and put on a new top coat and buff them out real good, they'd be good to go. The reality is it's more like going, out, going down to the morgue and realizing those people aren't getting up. Unless there is a supernatural intervention, they will continue to be dead. I've got good news for you tonight. Uh, that though we die, the scripture says, in Christ, yet shall we live. The only thing we're going to shake off is this old mortal body that's someday going to be replaced with a brand new resurrection body. He says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Uh, the uh, reformers referred to this as total depravity. Now, when I grew up, we talked a lot about being deprived. Uh, I didn't always have the Dr. Pepper I wanted to drink. I didn't always get a cheeseburger on Friday night. I may have been deprived of that and even things that I actually needed. But we're not talking about deprived. We're talking about depraved. We're talking that, about that which affects our very nature. Uh, that into which we were born because, as Romans 5 tells us, uh, that in Adam all sinned. But in Christ all have been made alive. But realize the alls are not equal. All men, women, boys, and girls have fallen in Adam, but it's only through faith in Christ that all will be made alive. He says that you are depraved, and that doesn't mean that you are as bad as you could be. When you look back on your life and you think, man, I made a lot of dumb mistakes, realize the mistakes you could have made. Even the worst people you could imagine, uh, even an evil man like Adolf Hitler could have been even worse than he was. It doesn't mean that people are as bad as they could be, but it means there is no part of you and me that has not been affected by sin. There's no part of who we are that has not been marred, uh, uh, scratched, scarred by the fall. And so when he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, uh, he, he goes on uh, to say that there's something that goes with that that you probably didn't realize when you were lost. Before you knew Christ as your Savior, Paul said, here's what was going on. And by the way, he's putting the church at Ephesus in this group. So that while we're going to talk about lost people and how to reach them, we're also being reminded this is where we were. Not so very long ago. He says, in which you formerly walked, this is verse 2, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. He's saying, you did what everybody else was doing, and guess who you were following? You were following Satan himself. 
You know, there are those who are secret agents. We watch movies and we read books about spies. and It's just super cool to read about these people uh, that are, are doing really important uh, operatives. And most people have no idea who they work for. Paul tells us that in the lost world, it's exactly the opposite. Uh, the, the master knows who is working for them, but they have no clue. I've never met too many people uh, that would claim to worship or serve the devil. And I think most of them did it just because they wanted to be weird and get somebody to pay them some attention. And they went down and painted a pentagram on the overpass. Most people don't realize that you're either serving God, you're serving Christ, or you're serving the devil. There's only two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And he says... You walked according to the prince of the power of the air, according to the, um, the spirit that now is working in the sons of disobedience. If you want to know why the world is going crazy, if you want to know why people do things that are absolutely unbelievable, it's because of whom they serve. It's because who their master is. They're not walking in light, so they're walking in darkness. They're not walking in life, so they're walking in death. And he says, verse 3, Among them too, and among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest the number one thing I believe that will give you compassion for those that need to know Christ is a good refreshing of your memory. To remember who you once were. To remember how far from Christ you once were. And by the way, not all those people are alcoholics and drug dealers and pimps and prostitutes. Let me tell you, I've been in church since nine months before I was born. Always there. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. If there was a window washing on Thursday night, we'd have been there to support that too. But you know what? I was just as lost as that man in the back alley that we think of as the stereotypical lost man. Oh, I was a clean-cut lost guy. I knew when to stand up at church. I, I knew the songs. Man, I, I'd memorized the songs better than some of the adults. I knew when to do the right things, and I knew how to avoid to do a lot of the wrong things. The problem was on the inside, I was dead and cold. And one of the clearest evidences of that, I remember uh, we had an interim pastor for a couple of years one time. And uh, he had actually been my dad's pastor when my dad was young. And I remember there was uh, an evening service when uh, a person came to faith in Christ. This pastor's wife walked up to me and she showed me her prayer list. And she just wanted me to know that I was still on her prayer list as a lost person. And you know what I was thinking in my mind? I wish you just shut up and leave me alone. And she was a nice lady. She was a great singer. I'd known these people for a long time. I knew that she didn't mean me any harm, but guess what? People who are lost don't like being reminded that they're lost, especially when they're so squeaky clean on the surface. 
He said we were just like them. And notice the final descriptor he gives there. And were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. He's not talking about our wrath. Oh, the world's full of a lot of wrath. There's a lot of anger being thrown back and forth between people. But he's talking about something far more significant than that. He's talking about God's wrath. He's talking about a a holy anger. Of course, in this day and time, a lot of people have dismissed that notion of an angry God and, and love much more the idea of, uh, of a grandfather kind of God who really doesn't discipline anything or anybody and just always ready to give you a piece of candy and tell you it's going to be okay. But can I tell you, not only is that not a biblical God, that's not a holy God. Uh, one of the things I have realized that some of the best teachers are the teachers who realize that there is a standard and we will keep this standard or you will leave my classroom. Amen. And if, if that needs to be done in the classroom, imagine how much more that needs to be done in the universe where God, I mean, all teachers got flaws. I got flaws. Miss Booth probably got at least one. And realizing that a perfect God, a perfectly holy God, how much more distance there is in in my attributes between me and God. I had some teachers way back when I sort of wondered about. But we don't need to stop and wonder about God. He would not be holy if he did not condemn that, which is absolutely the opposite of his perfect righteousness. You want to know who your children are apart from Christ? They're children of wrath. You want to know who your husband or wife is apart from Christ? They're children of wrath. You want to know who your neighbors, your grandparents, your aunts and uncles, who all of them are apart from Christ? They're all children of wrath. Which means this. That though it may appear that they are going on their merry way. I mean, the psalmist wrote about this. David uh, couldn't understand at times why his enemies seemed to be having a hootenanny while he was suffering and running for his life. I heard Dr. Tony Evans explain it one time. He said, although they seem to be having a great time in their sin and rebellion, he said, God is all the while drawing the bow of his wrath. And he draws and he draws and someday... He'll let go. And while it appeared that they were having such a good time, the righteous judgment of God will fall on them and there will be eternal condemnation, eternal devastation. Jesus said it like this. Shortly after, he gave us the great words of John 3.16. In 3.18, he said, He who believes in him is not judged. Jesus speaking of himself. He who does not believe in him has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So in other words, the people who do not know Christ in their spiritual deadness are in essence on a spiritual death row, if you will. Sometimes we say, why is it people go to death row and stay for decades? I can't exactly give you an intelligent answer for that. But I don't want to be on death row no matter how many extra years I get to stay there. And you see, when, when the sentence that that is supposed to represent is carried out, it doesn't matter how long it takes to get to it. 
but your life is gone. Here in a moment, I'm going to share with you an illustration that also plays off of that same image. We have to understand the spiritual deadness of those that we meet. And by the way, we've got to make sure that we are not among the spiritually dead. Sometimes the reason why the church is not salt and light out in the world is because there are many mingled among the church that are still in the darkness. Uh, You can't witness of that which you do not know. I've heard people talk about climbing Mount Everest. I've, talked about, I've heard people talk about even flying over it and seeing the enormity of that snow-capped mountain. I'd have to think, up, I'd have to think real hard to make up a story that even sounded impressive because I haven't been close to it. And I could look it up on the Internet, but that doesn't begin to do justice to what it is like to experience. What an awesome sight. It must be. Friend, tonight, if you've been a part of this church for years, maybe you're not a member, but you've been here more than a lot of the members have. That doesn't mean anything in light of eternity. In fact, if anything, it may mean you're more deceived than a lot of people because you thought that by coming and doing the activities of the church, that made your heart right. But it does not. Uh, you, you don't go hang out in your garage in hopes of becoming a car or hang out in the hen house in hopes of becoming a hen or laying any eggs. It's not going to happen. Proximity does not change your heart. Before you go and try to witness to someone else, your first call of business is to be saved, to repent of your sins and place your faith and trust in Jesus Not only do we have to uh, see where we're going to find them, which is spiritual deadness. Secondly, we have to identify what they really need, and that is divine intervention. Look again at verse 9. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, the anticipation is building here. He's not pulling the trigger on this just yet. Notice how he keeps building up the situation. Being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our transgressions made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That is what we call the doctrine of regeneration. That we are made alive by the Spirit of God. That's not a term we use a whole lot unless we're talking about a a starfish or a lobster that lost a leg and will eventually be able to regenerate it. Uh, This is that work of being given life when you are dead. It's not something you had and lost. It's something you've never had. Notice how he he describes it. Uh, This is a divine invasion. And I want to encourage you tonight to be careful of a certain way of thinking. That way of thinking that says, well, you know, Jesus is the perfect gentleman. And he would never press his way into my life. And usually that idea is based on Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Let me remind you, that is written to the church at Laodicea. 
It's not written to lost people. It's written to Christians who have strayed, who have backslidden, as we say, far away from the will of God, and Jesus is no longer the center of that church. Let me ask you a question. If you were sleeping in your house, and your house was on fire, and your neighbor walked by, what would you like for them to do? Would you like for them to say, oh, it's so sad. You know, somebody really needs to do something, but I don't want to be rude. They put a lot of money in those windows. I don't really want to throw a brick through one and open the window. Um, You know, if I knew they wanted me to do something, I'd do it. Let's pray. Are you out of your mind? Let me tell you what I want you to do if my house is on fire. I don't care if you want to drive your truck through the front window. The house is going to be gone anyway. You run in. You spare no expense to save me because my death is imminent. I don't think we find that pansy Jesus in the Bible who's saying, Well, I would, but I don't want to know. Notice, there there is nothing here between lostness and God making the sinner alive except for the sovereign work of a sovereign God. So if you will allow me, I think of the work of Jesus more like when I'm sleeping in my burning house and Chuck Norris pulls up. Chuck's not going to knock on the door. He's not even going to see if he can text me to see if he can wake me up. His foot is going into that door. He's going to knock it down. Uh, He'll do. He'll drive the truck through it if he has to. He's going to come in. He's going to yank me up. He's going to throw me over his shoulder. And he's going to save me lest I perish. Which one do you want? This is the kind of saving work that God is doing. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a sovereignty freedom balance there. That God is doing the saving, and he calls us to repent and to believe the gospel. But if he were waiting on us to save ourselves, we'd all go to hell. Notice this description of, of this divine invasion of our God. He is rich in mercy. What does mercy mean? Mercy means you're not getting what you deserve. Oh, man, I can remember a time or two growing up. My, my dad, um, he could quote you uh, the verse from the King James uh, that said uh, that he who, um, let, me, let me remember how it's quoted in the King James before I try to say it. Uh, it actually says that uh, if you beat a child, you'll save his soul from hell. My dad quoted that many times. More literally, it actually is saying that you'll save him from death. That if you will discipline that child, uh, you may save their life. Nevertheless, my dad really liked the drama of quoting it in the old version uh, because he definitely did not spare the rod. I got more of those tales than, than I have time to tell you. But I remember those very rare occasions when I had it coming. I remember one Sunday, we were doing a little youth choir get-together, and my mom had stopped by the store and gotten the Cokes back in the day when they were in the returnable bottle. I mean, you didn't do that very often. It's expensive. 
And we sang our songs, and guess who wanted to act like a complete idiot? Me. And I cut up, and I didn't sing, and I wanted to do all that I wanted to do. And I'm not sure exactly what Mama had to say, but I remember driving home that Sunday afternoon looking up into the clouds and somewhere between praying, oh God, help me, and just wondering how much thunder was going to be down under my backside in just the next minute. And I'll never forget, I got home that afternoon and my dad said, you go to your room. I was never so happy to go to my room and be all by myself. Why? Because I knew I deserved what normally I would have gotten. You see, mercy is what God does when He doesn't condemn us all. A perfectly holy God could justly condemn us all to hell and be absolutely right in doing it. So if you ever say, oh, God, give me justice, you better bite your tongue. You don't want justice. You want mercy. You want grace. You want God not to give you what your sinful self deserves. And you want God to give you what you do not deserve, which is grace. What he's actually talking about here, he's rich in mercy. He's motivated by love. The love that he poured out on us. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world. He didn't have to, but he chose to. The number one thing motivating him was his own glory. His own good pleasure in saving sinners. He didn't need a friend. He wasn't lonely. Those are all made-up ideas. He was a holy God who wanted to save ruined sinners. And so he does this work of spiritual resurrection. When he says, you were made alive, verse 5, made us alive together with Christ. And parenthetically, it's usually written, By grace you have been saved. To remind us, there's no way you would have gotten up if he didn't do it by his grace. You're kidding yourself if you think you got you up. If something you did made you a new person in Christ, this was God's work. And that would be enough right there. But he doesn't stop. He goes on to talk about the guarantee that we have of this salvation. Uh, And raised us up, verse 6, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, which means what? I already have a reservation. There is a place in heaven that has been reserved for me and for all who have placed their faith and trust in Christ. First church I pastored was near Clarksville, Tennessee, and uh, started in the spring of 1998. It was around the time that the Houston Oilers had given up on Houston and decided to pack their bags and move to Nashville, Tennessee and change their name to the Tennessee Titans. And one of the big things that was being announced on radio, TV, and all over the place was the opportunity to purchase a PSL, a permanent seat license. I never did call and price one, let me tell you, because I knew I couldn't afford one. Things are thousands of dollars. 
but it means you've got a guaranteed seat to every game because you bought the license for it. Isn't it great to know that Jesus has given a permanent seat license in glory for all those who will trust in Him? And we didn't pay the price. He did. It's reserved seating where we will receive Look at verse 7. So then in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In other words, we need his grace now, and yet we will receive it for all eternity. The Bible tells us some of that, but I don't think we can begin to imagine what it's going to be like to be in the unhindered uh, glory of God forever. To be showered by His grace forever and ever with there being no sin, nothing to block what God has in store for us. And then we come to those verses that Baptists love to quote. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. What is grace? Somebody once said grace is more than a blue-eyed blonde. That sounds too Tammy Wynette personally. It lets us know that there's nothing earthly about this. Just as mercy means you don't get what you do deserve, grace means I'm going to give you what you could never deserve. And by the way, when we go out to share the gospel with those who are lost, be careful of talking yourself out of it by saying, well, he's a good person. She's a good person. They're a nice family. That's good by worldly definitions. Good in the sense that they may be law-abiding and they pay their taxes and they even mow their grass on time. Got children that know how to make good grades and those are all good things, but those are not eternal things. Those don't necessarily come from a heart that's been made right. We all stand in need of this grace. For by grace, by the unmerited favor of God, by His free gift, you have been saved through faith. The only thing we've been called to do is to believe. To believe. And with that, people ask the question, well, what, what about what the Bible says about repentance and faith? And some will argue, we believe, we don't have to worry about repentance. How are you going to fall in love with Jesus when you're still in love with the world? Not going to be any two-timing when it comes to Jesus. You've got to break up with that dead, sinful, worldly life before you embrace Christ. That lets us know that repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. I can't love Jesus uh, if I still love my sin. Jesus said in Luke 13, 3, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Unless you stop loving the things that your flesh wants to love and start loving the Savior whom you love only because he has made himself known to you. 
Only then will you truly be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That's a little better translation than uh, are ye saved. It lets us know it's an established reality. I have been saved. I am being saved day by day. And one day my salvation will be complete when I see Jesus face to face. It is a past finished piece of business and yet is a current reality and a future that is beyond our wildest imagination. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Here we go. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. I've met a lot of people, the, the only church I've ever been in is Southern Baptist Church. Uh, now that I'm a grown man, if I wanted to be somewhere else, I could be somewhere else. But the reason why I'm pretty quick to offer critique of my own tribe is because I think I know us pretty well. One of the things I've noticed is that we like to talk about being saved by grace, but we like to hold a little bit over here that I want to sign my name to. Oh, it's victory in Jesus, but we all know I chipped in the last 5%. I mean, come on. <laughs> Have you seen my Sunday school record lately? you seen my kids? Yes, they look like their mother, but, I mean, come on, God. I'm offering you a lot of things. And yet that is blasphemy in the eyes of a holy God to think that a dead man could even raise a finger. It's only because God in His grace raised him up and made him alive and saved him by grace and not by himself. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Can you imagine how obnoxious a place heaven would be if we were all walking around with our trophies hanging around our necks? This morning, uh, some of my pastor friends and I, we have a, a group of pastors get together to pray every uh, Thursday morning at 9 o'clock in the upper room of the associational office. And one of the pastors said, uh, you, you ever notice that sometimes when preachers get up to preach, they want to give their humble brag? They first of all say, you know, were it not for God and his grace, and boy, here they go. Were it not for God's grace, I wouldn't be the absolutely awesome person that I am. And it's as though what they just said got absolutely smashed by their pride. Wouldn't it be obnoxious if that's what heaven was about? Our motivation then wouldn't be the glory of God. Our motivation would be bragging rights. Our motivation would be, well, I'm <laughs> just a little bit better than you. What is your motivation now for what you do? Do you do the things you do in obedience to Christ and not do certain things more because you want to impress people than because you love Jesus? I have to confess, that has been my motivation at times. It wasn't because my heart overflowed with love for Jesus. It's because I had a good record and I wanted to keep on letting everybody know just how good I was. In the last several years, God has shown me just how obnoxious that is. What a stench in his nostrils that is. That whether you're church-going lost or whether you're wandering in the woods lost, that lost is lost no matter what the packaging is. 
You can take a rotten egg and lay it out in the yard, or you can put it in in a uh, gold-laced, ribboned uh, box, and it's still rotten. And that's how sinners are. Now, some of you may be saying, what about that whole thing that James says uh, about faith without works is dead? Well, James is there identifying what real faith looks like. Real faith doesn't merely occupy a church pew. Uh, real faith uh, is not like uh, collectibles. When I was young, I started, con- uh, started uh, collecting John Deere toys. I had a few of the toys that were my dad's from back in the, the 1950s. He had broken all the tractors when he was little, but he still had the corn picker and the drag disc and uh, a wheat drill and a manure spreader. Some were better than others. And so we started working on collecting, especially the collector's editions, which, by the way, is a very expensive hobby. And I collected and I collected until I got married, and then I couldn't afford to collect. And guess what that becomes? It either becomes a lot of stuff that you've got to find a place to put, or as I have now, I've stuffed it in boxes that are somewhere between the house and the barn. And I realize, you know what? If I'm not willing to sell that, it might as well be a rock collection. If I don't ever cash it out, it's basically worthless to me. God has not given us a salvation uh, that is a whatnot collecting dust. We're supposed to have our hands to the plow. Remember what Jesus said? Anyone who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of heaven. While it is true that our being comes before our doing, our being in Christ is never without the doing of obedience. Which takes us to the last part. We've seen that we're going to find them in spiritual deadness. They will be in need of the same divine intervention that you and I experienced when God saved us. That no matter how proud they are of their works, just like the Pharisees, their works just are leading a a much more polished person to condemnation. Lastly, we have to ask the question, what is it that we're pointing them toward? What is it that we're saying, when God changes your life, here is the outcome? If I were to ask you that, most people in here would simply say, heaven. You think about that. Is the only purpose for God saving you to send you to heaven when you die? Let me ask you, what are you doing in the meantime? I had a friend several years ago who was preaching on this issue, and he said, uh, if all there was was for us to go to heaven uh, when we die, God should have killed us right after he saved us. So we didn't mess up anything in the meantime. Oh, I look forward to heaven. I look forward to being in that place where my mother and father and many other saints of old are. But let me show you something. We often quote Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and we forget 10. Verse 10 goes right along with it. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So just as he has said, you're not saved by works, but you are saved for works. 
We don't, we don't get the, the cart in front of the horse like it's a wheelbarrow so he can push it. We keep the order right. But we don't disconnect the cart. Between now and when the Lord calls you home, He saved you with a work in mind. And God is not calling an audible at the line of scrimmage. How do we know that? He said God prepared these things beforehand. If we were to go back to chapter 1, we would see that God has been predestining things for us from eternity past. Wow. To think that God was working out a plan for me before he had even worked out a completed plan for this creation. We are his workmanship. The word in Greek is poema. We get our word poem from that. Now, while we don't want to put that word in Paul's mouth, it helps us kind of get the idea that he has saved us to be a new creation in Christ, to be his workmanship. When you were lost, you were your workmanship. When I was lost, man, I was really impressed with me. And I finally came to realize what the Bible means when it says our best is but filthy rags. Oh, how much better to lay my tools down and to say, Lord, you're the potter. I'm the clay. Whatever you want to make of me will be just fine as long as it's you that's doing the making. That's what Ephesians 2.10 is all about. We've been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which we said he has prepared beforehand. But here's the last piece of the puzzle, that we should walk in them. What does that mean? We need to live according to those things. We need to be practicing them as a regular part of life. I, I fear that there are Christians, conservative, well-meaning Christians, who can tell you what they think their spiritual gift is, but they'd have to tell you because you'd never know it otherwise. Because you don't ever see them practicing it. It's kind of, I'm a, I'm a card-carrying teacher right here. You know what happens when you leave everything just in your wallet? That's amazing. This has been a good wallet in quality, but absolutely destructive. That card, you can see that, split in half. My driver's license, broken absolutely in two. Why? Because I spend most of my time sitting on them. Imagine the kind of shape your giftedness is in if you're just spending most of your time sitting on it. God didn't give you a gift so you could say, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I got the, the, the gift of service. Really? Where are you serving? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm praying about that. How long have you been praying? Uh, yeah, it's supposed to rain tomorrow. <laughs> and all of a sudden, people start to get really uncomfortable with the fact that God has given them something that they have done nothing with. Now, we said we were going to look at this passage because uh, it lets us know that we've got to get the gospel right. This is another piece that we've got to make sure we've applied to ourselves. To know that we are saved, 
But to also know that we're living out whatever gift it is that he gave us. Because when you go and share Jesus with them, what are you going to tell them? When we say God has a wonderful plan for your life, what does that mean? If you turn on that guy on TV, he's going to tell you God's got a Bentley for you. God's got a gold-coated mansion for you. God just wants you to be healthy and wealthy. Poor Apostle Paul, he never experienced that. In fact, Jesus' only response to him was, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness, not in wealth. Now, will God give some people wealth? Yes. But I've not met many servants of God that had lavish wealth. Why? Because the Bible warns us that it has even caused some people to depart from the faith. Because they loved their wealth, it became their God. So tonight, as we prepare to sing the hymn of response, first of all, I want to ask you, have you got the gospel right? The gospel you say you believe, is it this one? Or is it a watered-down version that says, you know, when you go out and, uh, Tim, when you go out and start witnessing to somebody, I guarantee you Tim can tell me the number one thing that they will say that they think is redeeming. They'll say, well, I've never killed anybody. Wow. Somehow there's this assumption, as long as I'm not a murderer, I'm good. I can't tell you how many people have told me that. Or they say, well, you know, I, I try to do unto others as I'd have them do unto, me, uh, unto uh, myself. And so they've, they've at least picked that little piece out of Scripture. The reality is they're, they're not even really doing that. The good news is that that murderer can be saved. And that Pharisee will be ever, forever lost if he doesn't get over his arrogance and humble himself before Christ. So as we prepare to take the gospel to the world, don't talk them out of their spiritual deadness. Uh, don't make excuses and say, uh, well, you know, I, I, I know that life throws a lot of things our way. Absolutely. But that never takes away the need to be saved never takes away the reality that they're dead I remember when I was 14 years old my mom died of cancer uh, she lived four months and six days after she was diagnosed and we got down to the very end and it seemed very obvious that she was going to die soon and I, I was a, a number one mama's boy I'll proudly tell you that and I was thinking oh, before the funeral I'm going to kiss my mama one last time. You know, I'd stood by that casket for several hours. And when it came down to that last minute, I didn't do it. Not because I didn't love mom, my mama with all I was. It's because I realized she's dead. She's cold. She's gone. And no matter what sweet memories I could dredge up of my mama did not change the fact that that was not mama. 
No matter how much we would like to think that our family members and our friends and our neighbors, maybe some way, somehow, might be okay, we're deceiving ourselves. Jesus made it clear in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If they've not placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, not just in word, but in such a way that it is clear that they were serious when they did it, they're dead and they're in need of new life. And guess what? You and I can't make them alive. Boy, if I could, I'd go around like a magic wand and just making all kinds of people alive in Christ, but I can't. So what am I doing? What what am I encouraging you to do? We used to sing that old song, Rescue the perishing. You remember it? Rescue the perishing. Care for the dying. Snatch them in pity from sin and the grave. Weep o'er the erring one. Lift up the fallen. Here it is. Tell them of Jesus the mighty to save. Will we do that? I can't give him new life, but I know he can. And if I will but be faithful to go out and introduce them to the one who will break into their lives, who will be the interruption that they weren't looking for, but the one who will rock not only their world, but who will rock their eternity. And that when he saves them, he doesn't just give them a ticket to heaven. He gives them abundant life that starts that day. So that they can start living not for a few things that they can hold in their hand until they die, but live in such a way that they are glorifying their Savior and making investments in that bank in eternity. Oh, let's get the gospel right and let's take it to people who need to be transformed by the power of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for its power I thank you for how this gospel saved me when I was a 12-year-old boy. And Lord, when we read it, we're reminded of just how lost we were. We're also reminded that we live in a world where we are surrounded by people who have taken up all kinds of substitutes for new life in Christ, a temporary fix, a temporary love, a new interest, a new hobby. Oh, God, help us to be faithful, to take the good news of Jesus to them, that as you have promised that your word would not return void, that your spirit would take your word and cause it to make application, that you make dead sinners alive unto Christ, that they turn from their sins and they turn to Jesus by faith, and that they would take the gift that your spirit has given them and begin doing something that counts for eternity. Oh, God, help us to take comfort in knowing that you haven't called us to go out and save people. You haven't called us to operate out of our wisdom or out of our strength. You just called us to be obedient. So, Lord, tonight as we sing this hymn of response, this invitation, uh, Lord, help us to reflect on how you transformed our lives and remind us that if we know enough to be saved, we know enough to tell someone else about Jesus. And God, if you did that work in our lives, you can do that work in someone else's life. But it won't happen if we don't take the gospel to them.
So God, as tonight we close out this series of meetings, may it be just the beginning when we realize we've got our marching orders and it's time to get out of the barracks. It's time to go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in. To the glory of Jesus Christ, our Lord, for it's in his name we pray.